Welcome to the Innovation and Compliance Podcast, part of the Compliance Podcast Network. Join us every week as we talk with industry innovators who are making compliance to help business run more efficiently and at the end of the day, more profitably. Here's your host, Tom Fox. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I am extremely thrilled to be back again with Philip Winterburn for our continuing podcast series on key performance indicators in compliance. Philip, can't thank you enough for taking the time to visit with me today. Thanks, Tom. I'm looking forward to it. So I wanted to just jump right into it and ask, I really have a discussion around organizational justice. This is obviously one of the most critical aspects of not just a compliance program and not even just an ethics program, but an entire corporate culture. How can you begin to think through the measurability of this, given its critical nature? Yeah, absolutely, Tom. So organizational justice, I think, first of all, you know, why is this important? Why should we be measuring it would be you know, where I'd start. And we know that an organization that has a reputation or a perception of fairness and justice within that organization does drive higher employee engagement, um, does increase the reports and concerns that will come in through the helpline because people believe that someone's going to do something about it and really has a positive impact on the culture in terms of commitment, reduced turnover, general employee satisfaction and engagement. So as you look at that, given that that is so important and such an enabler for using the ethics and compliance concepts of organizational justice to actually impact the performance of the business by driving that higher engagement of employees. That's why it's so critical. So getting back to you know what do we use to measure that and what are the important things within organizational justice that we need to be watching? When you break it down, there are three key things that people look at. One is, do I believe that there is fairness in the distribution of outcome for the level of effort put in. So, you know, are people who are putting in the best effort getting the best outcomes? Are people who are crossing the lines actually being sanctioned correctly? The second one is the procedural justice side of things, which is, do I believe that the process itself that derives those outcomes is fair? And then the third one is the fairness of interpersonal communications. Do I believe I'm actually treated fairly and with respect? And what studies are shown is it's the second one there, the procedural. So does the actual process, is my perception of that process, and it's key, this is perception, is my perception of that process that it is fair and therefore the outcomes will be fair. And so how do we look at that? How do we drive that perception and what are the measures we can have around that as you look at that? And so, you know, obviously communication is key, but one of the key measures within the ethics and compliance space, when you look at like just case management that we see that really drives that perception is how quickly we can manage cases to closure. If a case drags on for months, you will very quickly lose the support and credibility with the employee base that have raised that concern. Whereas if you can quickly address that and show resolution, and this is where the communication aspect comes into that, and we can talk some more about that later, that then increases the perception of justice and fairness within the organization, which then accelerates all those positive aspects that I talked about earlier. So what are some of the uh, key performance indicators you find are critical around organizational justice? So I think there's, as I mentioned, so case closure rate is key. I think that's a great, great measurement. 
And then you do get into the even just the reporting rates within the organization. So we will see that an organization with high organizational justice or perception of fairness will have much more engaged employees, so you will see higher reporting rates. But in terms of direct measurements, one of the most effective, if you can do it right, and I think we'll talk about this in a separate podcast, is around surveying. So if you can run an effective survey to really gauge and measure the perception of the employees of the fairness of the process, the transparency of the process, um, do they have visibility at the right level in terms of how people are being treated, how situations are being managed, that response, that survey response will be a very good measurement for you. Would you feel like a substantiation rate is a part of a KPI for organizational justice? Would that really fall under another category? Um, I think that really falls under another category. I think, you know, so substantiation rate is an interesting one. We see very, very consistent levels of substantiation rates I think a lot of that is the noise that you get into a helpline is really independent of the perceived fairness. People being people will complain about all sorts of things. And so the substantiation rate we see is being very, very stable, I think, across different organizational cultures. So you talked about several types of organizational justice, and one, I believe, is anti or a lack of retaliation, so that someone who makes a claim or raises their hand, speaks up, uses their reporting line, they're not retaliated against. And would it be fair to say that an anti-retaliation metric could also be a key performance indicator of your organizational justice? Absolutely. I think that's an excellent one. And there's it's fascinating when you start looking at retaliation because most organizations will tell you they have no retaliation issue. And that's the overt retaliation where you see you know, bullying or similar activities going on. What's far more nefarious is the sort of the undercurrent of retaliation and the subtle retaliation that can occur. And, and we had a client that did an analysis of salary progression for whistleblowers as opposed to their peers and were horrified to discover that there was retaliation happening in the organization because there was a significant disparity in the career progression of those individuals as compared to their peers almost across the board within the organization. So I think, yes, measuring retaliation is key, but you have to be a little smarter about it. It's not as blatant as do we have any retaliation cases coming in. It's look under the covers and have a look at the career progression of the individuals who are whistleblowers, whether they you know, even stay in the company, how their careers move forward, how their salaries are being handled, because you may be surprised to find that you have retaliation where you didn't think you did. Could we maybe even take that a step further, that type of analysis, to the fairness of employees who do business ethically in compliance with the company's code of conduct? and values and do some type of analysis to see if they are receiving a normal salary progression or even a promotional progression. Yeah, it's an interesting idea. Yes, absolutely. Looking at the positive side of it is always far more valuable than the negative side. And that would be an interesting analysis to do. It's a great idea. So that's one of the things that really intrigued me about your analysis, Philip, was the institutional justice is not about procedures only. It's not about what I might call the law. It's really about how 
employees are treated fairly in all manner of their employment relationship, in their promotions, in their interactions with senior management, even the individual respect that a senior manager might give an employee not engaging in abusive language or cursing. So that's why I was so intrigued and why I feel like this topic is so, as you identified, critical yet measurable for a corporation. Yeah. I also think, you know, there's the other piece of this is communication, that the perception is driven by communication and transparency. I had a recent client I was talking to where one of their senior executives was let go for inappropriate gift handling. And the chief executive made a point of being very transparent about that with the rest of the organization, much to the horror of some of the other senior executives. But it created a really positive message within the company from a fairness standpoint that no matter how far up the organizational hierarchy you are, there are consequences for unethical behavior. And by rather than sweeping it under the carpet and keeping it quiet, using that as an opportunity to reinforce the transparency, I think, was exceptional. Next, Philip and I take up the topic of key performance indicators around surveys. Philip, you have subtitled this topic powerful and dangerous. So why don't we just start off with uh, what did you mean by that? So I see, you know, surveys, I think, have an incredible opportunity to give you real insight into the organization. The problem is they are fraught with risk. If deployed incorrectly, the result set that you get can be hugely biased and not representative of the organization. And so, yes, they are incredibly powerful if you can get the right level of participation and transparency. But if not, they can be incredibly dangerous because you can be tempted to draw conclusions from a set of information that is really incomplete. So with that explanation of both the power and the dangers of surveys, how can you utilize a survey to really test the ethical health of an organization? Yeah, I see the combination of there's the sort of the company-wide annual often HR-driven survey where a compliance team or ethics team get to embed a few questions at the end down to the what I see emerging much more of these pulse surveys, which are much more targeted, quicker, rapid, shorter, and very focused. And so I'm a big fan of the pulse surveys. I think it allows you to be much more surgical in your analysis. And so the measurements around that, I mean, there are a variety of standard questions out there that organizations use that everyone can pull down and, and leverage. But to use those to really test the perception of the team as to the ethics of the organization, the fairness of the organization, the ethical health of the leadership, all of those questions are all very valid. And if you use them in conjunction with a, an overarching ethics and compliance program, I think they can be used very surgically. So as you are, through your analytics, identifying areas of risk and concern within the organization, the ability to then deploy these sort of quick little pulse surveys into those areas to get additional insight, I think can be extremely valuable. Would it be, perhaps not fair, but could you craft a survey with similar questions, but a survey those who might be looking at the organization from the outside? So perhaps third parties, perhaps customer yep. perception, uh, perhaps uh, shareholders to get really an outside view, but a view of how others would see the organization and use that information in a feedback loop going forward. Yeah, I think you absolutely can. Um, obviously, 
participation is key in these things. And so the communications around those, especially when you're going outside the organization, would have to be even more robust to get the rich participation that you want so that you are getting a representative response set. One of the things we've actually been working on is the sentiment analysis of social media, which is another way to get that external validation because you can see the sentiment of people tweeting about your organization, whether they're customers or suppliers, providers, business partners. You can see the trends and changes over time as sentiment may ebb and flow, which is also another great, it's like a survey, it's just an unprompted survey, I guess to get you that feedback loop. One of the things that they taught us in my first statistics class way back when was you have to throw out the highest and you have to throw out the lowest <laughs> to try to get some sort of sense of where the actual true range might be. How do you do that in the context of extremists in a corporation who might respond to a survey? Yeah, and I think that's where it's critical that you have a representative sample set. And this is where you know not many ethics and compliance programs have statistical analysts to hand to come in and actually deploy the tools that are out there. But there are tools that can do this and techniques to ensure that the response set is large enough to be considered representative and then to also do the analysis of the responses. And this is where you know people get a little bit too focused on averages they're all very interesting, but what is far more interesting is the distribution. So as you start looking at the distribution of responses, you can start to see where there is density and where there are outliers. And sometimes throwing out the top and the bottom is the right approach. Sometimes you'll find that there is a whole cluster up at the top. Uh, who knows? But it's a matter of really understanding the data set and understanding the sample size to ensure that you aren't just getting the extremists, which is always the risk you take with these things, if you don't get enough people participating, the people who are motivated to take the time to fill out a survey are the ones that have a strong view or a strong opinion, whether that's positive or negative. So you'll tend to get skews to the extremes rather than hearing from the silent majority who may not feel particularly strongly motivated to answer the questions, which goes to you know, why it's so important to have a really robust communication program around any survey that you do. You, know, you, you have to ensure and try and drive participation. Uh, and you do that, you know, obviously, we talked a little bit earlier about anonymity, but giving people the belief and understanding that they can be anonymous in that process so that they feel safe in participating is critical. And so that communication process ahead of any surveys that you do is key. And then the communication process after the survey as well is just as important. People need to hear and understand that their feedback has been understood and incorporated and acted upon. And then something, it's like trust, you build it over time, right? So as the employee base get used to these surveys and get used to them not having negative consequences and get used to seeing action taken within the organization as a result, that will all gradually increase participation. So ultimately, you'll get to the point where you have enough participants to actually use the data with real value. Philip, I've of course, had the privilege of interviewing multiple persons for my podcast and writing several blogs over the years. One of the things that compliance officers will often share with me is that 
we made this change because of an employee survey or we made this modification or we use this information in some way. And they're quite open about sharing within the compliance community that they may have made a change based upon an employee survey. Would you advocate that the chief compliance officer or, or a compliance professional perhaps turn 180 degrees and make that same announcement internally that we've actually done something based upon employee feedback and celebrate that as well? Absolutely. I wouldn't, yeah, I wouldn't even recommend it. I think it's absolutely required. I think if you have that wonderful opportunity where the employee feedback that you've given, you've received has stimulated a change within the organization, you can celebrate and announce. I think that is something that will, without doubt, drive improved participation in the future. It also, you know, we talked in another podcast about organizational justice and fairness. It also reinforces that if people believe they're being heard and their opinions are respected, you will increase employee engagement and uh, satisfaction within the organization as well. So you absolutely have to do that if you have that opportunity. In one sort of section, some of the common pitfalls you've seen in surveys. Yeah, I think some of the common pitfalls are failing to communicate ahead, so failing to educate the employee base on what this is, and that is anonymous to reinforce that message. I think it's more than just an email going out. This has to be something that is managed through the organization, like any change management communication to really ensure, especially for the first time, to ensure people understand it and drive that high engagement. I think failing to communicate afterwards the findings and the key actions coming out of that survey would erode trust in that process. So that is absolutely key. And then the other piece that we've sort of touched on is really driving the anonymity message. If employees don't believe they can be anonymous in the process, you will most likely not get them engaging in it. So you really have to push that message hard and make sure people understand that they are protected. Philip, one of the things that the bywords I think you hear in the compliance profession is benchmarks, benchmarks, and benchmarking. Every compliance <laughs> professional has probably at some point in their career been instructed by someone above them to benchmark where their compliance program is compared to others within their industry, within their geographic area, or, or some other comparison. So I wanted to visit with you today about benchmarking, any key performance indicators, and really where you see the, uh, not the pros and cons, but the upsides and downsides for benchmarking. Absolutely. I think, you know, benchmarking, as you say, is something that is sort of top of the list in this discipline and ethics and compliance. And it's such an interesting thing when you're, you know, you're measuring human behavior there is no necessarily right answer. Like the classic example is intake through a helpline. You know, what's the right number of reports? And, you know, boards ask that question of compliance professionals. You got 22 harassment cases came in in the last quarter. Is that good or bad? And what's the answer? And so that has created an appetite for benchmarking, which is, is very healthy if it's done right. And so having those conversations about the context around the numbers that we're reporting, I think is key. So, you know, when we talk about intake, for instance, there's always a question of, you know, no intake is bad, too much intake is bad. Somewhere in the middle, there's a happy medium that we're all looking for. And what is that magic number? And you can only get to that by really looking at benchmarks across other organizations that you could compare yourself to. And this is where it gets very interesting. I'm sure we'll talk about this in a little bit in terms of what you choose to benchmark yourself against. 
So how does a compliance professional sitting in Denver, sitting in Houston, sitting somewhere in the United States who works for a multinational organization begin to think through the parameters of context? That's a great question. So I think the, you know, we've been hampered to date within the ethics and compliance world because we haven't had good benchmarks available. We, you know, there are several publications out there, but they are, you know, the moment they're published, they're out of date. And because they're publications, you can't do much with them. They're just numbers. So one of the things that we're very focused on is bringing benchmarking to life within analytics so that you can see how your data compares on a day-to-day basis to the benchmark across other organizations within our system. Because we believe that you know live benchmarking is far more valuable. And a case in point, a real example of that and why it's so important to be up to date was as we were going through Q4 of 2017, we saw this uh, incredible uptick and increase in benchmark reports coming in, sorry, in reports coming in about sexual harassment. And any one organization on their own seeing this sort of 3x increase in the number of harassment cases being reported would have been horrified and then been faced with the challenge of explaining why suddenly harassment was rife within their organization. With the capability of benchmarking that across all our clients, we saw that this was actually a societal shift and that everyone was experiencing this uptick. And so putting that context around it made us realize that it's not that harassment, sexual harassment was increasing, it was that people were finally talking about it. And so as a result of the Me Too movement that had come out in sort of Q4 last year, where we were seeing celebrities come forward, put their names out there and say, this happened to me, it was emboldening everybody in society to raise their hands and step forward as well. And so within an organization, then it's a very different conversation that you're having with your board and with your employees about that increased reporting rate. That increased reporting rate is now not because of an increase in harassment going on. It's that people are finally stepping forward and talking about the harassment that has been going on for years. And so the way you then address that and and can manage that is far different. So that's just one example of how the power of context can really change the dialogue and what you're doing with benchmarks. One of the things that I find that senior management, not in the compliance function or discipline, seems to think is that any benchmark data will apply to their own organization. And one of the things the Department of Justice and Securities and Exchange Commission continually tell us is you have to manage your risks, assess your risk, and then put in an appropriate risk management strategy within the context of the regulations you have to work under. How does that really apply to benchmarking as well? Yeah, I think that's a great point. And you're right, the wild sort of use of generic high-level benchmarks is actually a disservice to the industry. That when you look at benchmarking, you really do have to be specific. And so you need to be able to filter the benchmark data down to take into account multiple factors that can affect the data element you're looking at. The easy one to pick on is helpline reports. And when you look at that, you know, there are differences in different industries. There are differences in different job categories. There are differences in 
geographies. So if you go to Spain, for instance, you see a very different level of reporting to what you see in the U.S. for historical reasons. So there's this whole you know, cultural, industrial job category. There's all sorts of attributes that actually change what the expected number of reports is. And when you look at benchmarks, one of the big mistakes people make is they focus solely on the average, whether it's the median or the mean. And by focusing on that, you lose the bigger picture, which is you really start want to start looking at the ranges. So the quintiles, the quartiles, how is the distribution spread? Is everyone really tight around that average or is it a very wide spanning average? And you want to be able to filter down to your industry and down to benchmarks that really apply to your type of employee base in the locations there, in the industry they're in, so that you're actually using benchmarks that are applicable to your industry and to those employees, not some high-level average benchmark that is global. How would you deal with a situation along the lines of the following? If you're subject to the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, for instance, you're doing business outside of the United States. And outside the United States, in many industries in the expat community, Americans certainly will socialize with other Americans, even if they work for competitors. And they may socialize in a way that they wouldn't do so, certainly in their cities of their home offices, such as Houston. When you have that sort of interaction, how do you separate the wheat from the chafe on the granularity in benchmarking? Yeah, it's interesting. It's a very unique situation. But we know, you know, whether it's Americans or even you know, for companies that are headquartered in Europe, uh, sending employees to other countries to work, no matter where it is, you tend to get these densities of uh, people from similar backgrounds coming together. And so you do get potentially competitors mingling outside of office hours because they provide that sort of cultural support that people need when they're working as expats. And that does inject a, a whole series of risks that you need to be aware of as a compliance professional. I think, you know, that creates, I mean, as, as I said, there's a whole series of risks that creates obviously competitive issues that you need to be aware of. It creates a need for training and awareness at a different level to what you would have to do within country. And so that's from a benchmarking standpoint, would be very interesting to then be able to narrow in and see what sort of trends you're looking at as you look at that group. But I would also tailor it to the specific risks that you would get when you consider your employees mingling with competitors and business partners in a social environment where you can expect there'll be you know, excessive sharing of information and uh, conversations. So, Philip, unfortunately, we're near the end of our time. I've been visiting with Philip Winterburn, the Chief Product Officer at Conversant. We've been visiting today on KPIs around benchmarking and that context is everything. Philip, once again, thank you for taking the time to visit with me. Tom, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Now I'd like to present you with a special offer to attend Converge 18, hosted by Conversant, with a 50% discount. As you know, the last year has publicly brought ethics to the center of business reputations worldwide. With the acceleration of the speak-up culture and organizational accountability that social media is enabling and amplifying, companies need to incorporate integrity into every level of their organization. 
Converge 18 is helping organizations to do just that by addressing ethical transformations head on. This event will be held in Denver, Colorado from October 8th through 10th. At it, you will be able to network with 300 of your peers, including C-suite executives, legal professionals, HR leaders, and ethics and compliance visionaries. Gain insights from 35 speakers, including such prominent speakers as Wei Chen, Steph Vogel, the NBA's Deputy Chief Compliance Officer, and Carol Switzer, President of OSEC. You will bring home actionable takeaways to your compliance program from a variety of sessions, including two keynotes, five general sessions, 12 based roundtables, and 18 interactive breakout sessions for you. You can get more information on Converge 18 at Conversant's website, conversant.com. Listeners to this podcast will receive a 50% discount to the event. Use the discount code TOMFOXVIP. That's all caps, TOMFOXVIP. If you're a compliance professional looking for a convenient and effective way to fulfill your continuing education requirements, go to fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses and choose from four hour-long training packages that will keep you current. That's fcpacompliancereport.com slash courses.